Hello, social yet dissident listeners. Today, I will be chatting to Dr. Golnush Noor. Golnush is a poet and writer whose acclaimed debut collection of short stories, The Ministry of Guidance, was recently published by Muswell Press, and whose forthcoming collection of poetry, The Mighty Rock Song, will be published by the 87 Press next year. So we've got a bit of a wait, but I promise you it will be worth it. And we're going to hear some of those blisteringly Baroque queer anthems later on in the show. At first, we're going to shoot the shit about poetry, decadence, life on Plague Island, and the soul of the queer. Gonoush, welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's a pleasure to be interviewed by one of my all-time favorite poets. So, yeah, Aww. thank you for having me. If I could blush, I would be blushing. <laughs> but I'm literally, Gonish will tell you that I am literally the color of the white emulsified wall behind me. I like, like, like a disgusting sort of puddle of milk. Um, <laughs> oh my God. You can edit stuff, right? You can edit stuff. Yeah, it's the joy of being able to edit. <laughs> but I think we'll just keep that in. Just, you know. <laughs> Style it out, it'll be fine. <laughs> right, so, seriosity. Um, to start us off kind of like gently, I wonder if you mind kind of speaking a bit about the Ministry of Guidance. And I know that you're probably sick of speaking about it now, but it is such a good book. And it's so important because it expands both the queer canon and also just the notion of queerness in general, that it isn't only about sexual desire, it encompasses and impinges upon all these other areas of life. So if you could talk a little bit about, about that and about the soul of the queer in your work, that would be awesome. Mm. I like that phrase, the soul of the queer. Uh, it's very nice. Um, well, the Ministry of Guidance and Other Stories um, contains 13 short stories. And um, my, uh, my initial purpose was to represent as many Iranian queers as possible. I mean, it started as a very simple, and I don't want to use the word simplistic, mm. as a simple project. Uh, because as an Iranian queer woman, I felt uh, invisible, uh, not just in Iran, but also in the West and um, in terms of also, you know, in, in terms of um, contemporary literature. Um, so, um, and not just in literature produced by Iranian writers mm. inside Iran and outside of Iran in the West where there is no censorship like that. Um, but so it, it started as this kind of simple project of representation. Uh, but I, I, now I would like, but then it expanded into something uh, much vaster. Um, so it's not just about representation. And I do think representation is very important, but it's not everything. And I think you and I have talked about this before and, and it's, it's, representation is not everything, but it's still very important. So um, it started as a project of representation that I felt um, invisible. And I felt uh, my, so many of my friends were invisible and uh, I also wanted to create queerness in my in my creative practice, you know, in my art. I wanted to recreate queerness and not just to be a queer person, but to create it in my work as well. Um, 
So it contains 13 short stories and I made sure that all the protagonists are uh, two things. Firstly, Iranian and secondly, um, but more importantly, in some ways, queer. Um, and by queer, um, although it's, it's, it's also about sexuality, but sexuality is not everything. Um, so I wanted to, I wanted to portray queer desire in my work in the, within the context of mm -hmm. Iran. So uh, there is so much about desire and, and I wanted to have, uh, you know, um, um, bisexual desire, homosexual desire and gender fluidity uh, and all that within the context of Iran. And that was really important to me. Uh, to do. Um, and um, so, and, and I think that's what the stories do. The stories, all, all these 13 short stories, they are about uh, Iranian queers, Iranian, Iranian people who have non-normative sexualities mm -hmm. and who, um, who express their non-normative desires, sexual desires and, and ideas. Um, uh, both within Iran and outside of Iran. Uh, so it's about that, because I did also feel like, firstly, there weren't many depictions of Iranians, um, at least in the West, in, 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 you know, in, in the English literary canon. Uh, but also if the, those few ones are uh, heteronormative, very heteronormative, you know, they're all about like, um, you know, very heteronormative Iranians and they all have heteronormative lifestyle and heteronormative goals. Um, so I wanted to, I, I, and to me it was really important to have representations of, of Iranian queers and Iranian queerness and queerness, acts of queerness within the context of Iran. Um, so that's what really, that's what it's about. So that's really the theme, queerness within the context of Iran. And uh, 13 short stories are just, you know, your, um, um, you know, 13 short stories with this subject matter, all themed around this subject matter. Um, sorry, I'm not being very <laughs> clear. I hope that's clear. Um, no, it's very, it's clear. And I think the great thing about, because I wanted to sort of speak about the characters in your short stories, because they're so different and they feel so individual. And it was just, it's a real, the book is a real joy because it's like, spending time with all these different queer personas and some of them you feel a real connection to and some of them you're like oh you're so funny <laughs> but in a good way in a way that's actually quite enervating and it just gives that kind of like that sense of polyvocality and the sense of that an Iranian identity particularly the one we get fed in the west yeah. it's not this homogenous thing yeah. particularly you know yeah. the, the depiction of Iranian women in the west is just so much neoconservative bullshit yeah, to justify hard. military yeah. intervention. It's really horrible. But to spend yeah. time with these characters, it's it's you know it expands the kind of the Western notion of, of Iran, and also of you know the, the possibility and the multiplicity of queerness itself, which is really refreshing, and we don't get enough of that. So. I think that that's something you do with the short story form brilliantly. You really make it work for you. 
Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and I'm glad you, you managed to relate to some of the characters. Uh, and um, yeah, and as we talked about, queerness is not just about sexuality. And I love this. Um, one of my favorite definitions of queerness is by Sarah Ahmed, uh, where she says, um, queerness anything that disrupts is queer mm -hmm. and I wanted my stories to have this disruptive element um, and, and queer acts I think non-normative sexualities and non-normative sexual acts and sexual practices are still queer and they are still considered mm -hmm. to be disruptive even in the west where they have been somehow normalized presumably um, so I, it was really important for me to also create that element of disruption and that was intentional and uh, and yeah for my characters also to feel like somehow like real people but also mm. not a not a not a cliche or what not a stereotype of Iranian people what you expect or what you have uh, you know seen so far like and so many of them, so many of the characters, I interviewed some of my friends, I interviewed some people that I didn't know that well, but I, I knew they were queer, so I interviewed them, I was interested in their queer stories. Um, uh, some of them are based upon my close friends, some of the characters I bet are based upon myself. And um, it's, uh, yeah, they do, uh, they do, I do think they do feel real and mm. they are quite, in that sense, I know authentic is a dirty word now when we <laughs> talk about but, um, I do think they are authentic for that reason because um, I I was just so sick of also as an Iranian that's the other thing it's not just about queerness as an Iranian person mm -hmm. in the west I also felt so uh, sick of these like stereotypes of like these like you know victim Iranian women like mm -hmm. always crying and like waiting to be rescued by like um, a man or, or, or a white man really uh, by like coming to the west and like leaving Iran I was just really sick of that and I was like that doesn't represent me or the people I know or the people I like in any way like of course like there are like there is some truth in that but it's not everything and it doesn't define everyone um, so I was I, in some ways, I also wanted to write against those cliches, but also that's my truth. Mm. So it just, yeah, it was just, for me, I think it was a natural thing to do to write a short story collection about uh, Iranian queers. Um, so, yeah, mm -hmm. I, yeah. And I'm glad you managed to relate to some of the characters because some of them aren't very nice. <laughs> Probably those ones that I related to. Not all of them are nice. And uh, uh, I, I am very interested also in uh, what might be called like anti-heroes. And I've always been mm. interested in anti-heroes as well as, you know, you know, protagonists or like nice protagonists. So uh, I am, I'm, I've always been interested in like more complex characters and protagonists rather than like, you know, the, the, the good ones, the, the nice ones, or the, I don't know, the baddies. Uh, so I'm really interested in those uh, gray areas of mm. also like human psychology and yeah. So that's the result, the Ministry of Guidance. It's a great book. 
And I think this idea of creating queerness and this idea of disruption and the living in the grey is something that carries across both of your, you know, your short story collection and your poetry, both Sorrows of the Sun, your first collection, and Rock Song, which I'm extremely excited about. I'm living for that date in the future where I can actually read the, the full collection and hold it in my hand. And so I'm sort of, it's really interesting that you talk about the idea of creating queerness and kind of creating this disruption in your writing, because I think queer as a theme is kind of is everywhere at the moment in like literary mm -hmm. studies and like popular culture but I think queerness is also it's a kind of a mode and a manner of writing and it's so difficult to define or to kind of pin down but it is something that I, I kind of sense in your work and so I wonder if you could maybe talk about you know with, your, with regard to your poetry especially kind of like the queer style or the queer aesthetic and if you have a kind of sense of that mm. or if it's just if it's just something we're kind of we're bringing to it we're told it's queer so we read it as queer or is it something that you you kind of you feel is a sort of I don't want to say a literary movement or a yeah. kind of but but something indefinable yeah in the text yeah I totally agree with you in that queer is really difficult to pin down and difficult to define in so many ways and uh, and also at the same time it's become extremely trendy mm. and it has entered the mainstream discourse and sometimes it's not a great thing that and sometimes I don't think they use it in the right way <laughs> it's not a very queer thing to say that uh, but <laughs> I remember a few months ago I saw this headline in pink news saying I think I told you about it because I was just so uh, disgusted actually that uh, the, the US army is now recruiting queer soldiers and uh, I was like why do you have to use the term queer just say homosexual or mm -hmm. trans and that's absolutely fine like why don't you say that because joining the US army and being in the US army is like the least queer thing Ever. like queer is about questioning like the status quo and to to question to constantly question like the the power structures and not to not to you know obey those power structures and to be outspoken about it and to and to defy them as much as you can and it's not just about sexuality and this is where I think queer isn't just about sexuality and we shouldn't just make it about sexuality it's more than that although non-normative sexuality is um you know uh, gay, bisexual, um, and also trans people. These are all um, these are all queer instances, and and this is all a way to make things queer, to queer things. But this is not the only way, and it's not enough on its own just to have a, a, a you know just to have um, um, a kind of um, a gender or sexuality that doesn't agree with the norm, the, the normative discourse of gender or sexuality. That's not enough to make someone or something queer. Queer is much more than that. And it's much more expansive than that. And this is, and, and I feel angry because it's also capitalism. It absorbs mm -hmm. everything poison a sponge and it has done that to the term queer and now it's very trendy and really cool and everybody uses it and 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 it's wrong <laughs> that's not uh, it's uh, that's that's not that's not queer at all why don't you say and it's great that we have freedoms you know that there are freedoms now for uh, for homosexuals for trans people that they didn't have until you know decades ago it's great that we have that and we need to celebrate that and we need to be outspoken about that but 
queer is more than that. It's not just mm -hmm. that. And it's not just about gender and sexuality. It's it's about opposing um, social norms and and and, and social uh, and power structures, uh, and having a different sexuality um, is just it's, it's really one way of being queer. And I think it's a very queer thing, but it's not everything. Uh, so and it's not the only definition of queerness. Um, so that, that is something I think we need to remember, and I think we need to be outspoken about. Um, so yeah, it's kind of, it's both good and bad that it's also entered the mainstream discourse because now it's okay to say I, I'm queer or I, I, I don't want to like, uh, I don't want to uh, have a husband and kids and a nine to five job. Mm -hmm. Like now it's kind of okay to say that, but then, um, but then, then you have headlines like that in pink news with like queer soldiers or, so it's, mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's <laughs> it's like everything else. It's being hijacked by capitalism, and I think we need to resist that as queer people. We really need to resist that. Uh, but also, it's not easy. So, it's not. <laughs> um, so, and I think, for instance, socialism as an is an is a very important part of queerness for me personally. Mm -hmm. My socialism is as queer to me as my sexuality. So, um, yeah. So. Yeah, all that. <laughs> all of that. All of that stuff. I love the poisonous sponge. Or that and more. I love the poisonous sponge of capitalism. I think that's amazing. That's a great description. Like, because if it can't beat you, it will join you and you have no choice. And it sucks you in. And it's very good at then giving back kind of those kind of those signifiers, those cosmetic signifiers, you know. It's I think the lovely phrase for it is rainbow capitalism. Like everybody's welcome. Well, of course, everybody's welcome because that way you can control us and puppet us and suck out all our money. Obviously, we're all welcome to the hooli. Great. But what yeah. have we gained from that? We haven't gained anything because shit rolls downhill. So it must be wonderful to be to be gay and to be able to, you know, join the army. Fantastic. <laughs> I would rather be campaigning for a situation where we don't have an army and no army exists and nobody's country is being fucking invaded and dicked yeah. over. It doesn't make any difference to me whether the person shoving the baton in my face or arresting my relatives is fucking gay. I don't feel better. You know, yeah. I don't feel better about that. And <laughs> sorry. And I think, yeah, and that's where like, that's where we need to be aware that representation is not everything. And like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter whether it's a female politician or a gay politician that's doing the bombing. That what matters in this context is bombing. And what we need to oppose is bombing, not the not the identity of the of the person who's doing it. But uh, everything uh, capitalism simplifies everything yeah. and absorbs everything and pulls everything out of shape. And um, and yeah, this is what we're left with. So we need to oppose that as much as possible. So yeah, I hope I have done that with my with my book, and I I hope to continue to do so. Uh, with my art really because there is nothing else we can do really as as powerless artists in the society <laughs> yeah we don't have I mean poetry and art it's it's a very small venue but we have to make it yeah. count and so one yeah. of my I'm looking at my show notes and one of my one of my questions kind of segues nicely into that is that when you do have the so-called queer poets 
I've been at events where I will hear them read and I will think, well, you're, you're just replicating tedious heteronormative prosody, but you're talking about your relationship with a woman rather than your relationship with a man. Nothing else about this is remotely queer. Yeah. And I think this is what, you know, I mean, it's what capitalism does, but it's also what literary elites do when they yeah. find an acceptable watered down version of the thing you do. And then they're like, here, enjoy some of this. And you, yeah. it gets sold back to you as that's what it is. And it also allows them to say, oh, well, we've, we've made the space for this very boring, mm. you know, Fiona surname kind of <laughs> <laughs> queer Karen person and like we we don't have to we can edit this <laughs> we, don't have to we don't have to bother with all the furious angry gay women out there we've we've got one and she's tame and i wonder yeah. if this is something that you you feel that you know is is still a real problem i mean i was talking to someone the other day and they're like no i don't think it's like that anymore i think it's basically fine now i'm like are you shitting me <laughs> <laughs> so i'm just gonna ask this is a super loaded question do you have you also kind of like do you also kind of find that that you're that even though places claim to be inclusive that they claim to be kind of egalitarian that when you're queer as opposed to just gay they're actually terrified of you <laughs> exactly yeah no I've encountered that um so many times and it's like with everything else they just it's it's their diversity game which is nothing more than a game to them so they make sure that it actually almost make sure that it is not a real change and they just they want to keep the status quo and so they're just gonna have a few like representative poets and um, it's it's hardly ever about quality it's hardly ever about politics it's just about them and them being trendy and cool um, so yeah I've encountered that a lot but I also do think um, there are amazing, like contemporary queer poets. Yes, there are. And we can, and I think it's it's good that we can hear them, and they're allowed to get published without, you know, ending up like Oscar Wilde. You know, it's it's great mm -hmm. that we have that because we wouldn't even have that only until a few years ago. So it's it's okay that representation is possible. Like it's it's at least it's not illegal anymore, not in this country anyway. So that's like, a, that's a baby step, but it's good. Uh, but I also agree that also it's the whole issue with representation and, and how we can make sure that our representation isn't just shallow and for the sake of like some game. And it, it is making a change and it's about that political cause also and art itself. Uh, so um, yeah, but there are many good, um, like amazing queer poets also in the UK to be fair. Um, so I'm kind of like optimistic. Yeah, I've seen, I, I know I have seen, I have seen some, I have seen some bad ones, you know, like with everything else, just because someone is queer doesn't mean they're a genius, um, you know, or, or necessarily <laughs> Or, um, uh, or just because someone is is gay or bisexual doesn't necessarily mean uh, they are queer. Also, that's the other thing. Um, but there are also queer poets who are producing really like like first class queer poetry in this country. So it's it's nice, and they don't always get the spotlight. And and it's it's yeah. So it's 
I think it's getting better and I have hope despite everything, despite capitalism and despite their stupid games. I think we need to remain kind of hopeful because that hope gives us strength and it has it, it, it is making things possible also when you compare it to I don't know 50 years ago mm. it's we are in a much better place um so yeah but yeah <laughs> yeah no I think I think we are in a much better place I I kind of I get ex I get kind of like wound up about <laughs> very wound up but with, <laughs> yeah. I, I need to remember and I think you know this is this is a lesson for everybody as well it's like you know socialism is also about raising everybody else and queerness is about raising your fucking community and talking about and celebrating each other all the time every time you get because nobody else is going to do it for you so you have to do that and not just bitching and moaning and carping from the sidelines in a really gross kind of like identity politics sort of neoliberal way which you know I think I, I can be kind of slightly guilty of sometimes <laughs> I just get because I love poetry so much and you know I, I, I also love you know like the 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 huge amazing queer communities out there and so when I feel like people are doing them a disservice I get really angry <laughs> which Cal fucking surprise Fran is angry um but I think which I I want to kind of talk about anger and about rage in in your poetry because one of the brilliant things about rock song, one of the things that I absolutely love, there's this kind of like Baroque decadent anger that is there. And it's kind of, it's tender, but it's also full of rage. And you have made the space for that. And it's beautiful and unapologetic and glorious in every conceivable way. And it's really refreshing because although there are lots of really great poetry collections that deal I think with with queer suffering and queer pain and queer grief mm. queer rage is still really underexplored mm. so I kind of want to get you to talk a little bit about um rage in your work and rage as a kind of motivating kind of force and also as something that has a real impact on your kind of on your linguistic and syntactic choices as well and the way the poem is kind of put together that sort of throb under language that I read in your work Hmm. that's an amazing point and you're right people don't often talk about rage especially this kind of pinkwashing that, that now they're committing with the with the term queer rage has no place in in their discourse in this in in in, in queer in this kind of trendy like um friendly uh, media friendly um uh, sense um so that's an amazing point and i didn't really plan for that right? <laughs> <laughs> to be a part of my work but you can't really separate it from queerness and um as a queer person you do in this heteronormative society in in all societies which are all heteronormative at the moment mm. it's just a matter of degree really you you do go through stuff that 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 make you full of grief and rage um um, Audre Lorde, I think, has a good line in Sister Outsider where she says, of course, she says it much better than I do, but she says something like, uh, my, my response to, to racism is always anger. And, um, and it's the same, like with, uh, with racism, queerphobia, it's um, how else can you respond to that? Mm -hmm. And there's still so much queerphobia and, and queer people are going through a lot of 
you know, queerphobia, even in this day and age, even in this country where mm. queerness is not illegal anymore. Um, so that rage is a part of that kind of uh, collective trauma. And it's, yeah, and I think so in a way that was inevitable and I didn't think about it. And you know, I am quite instinctive with my poetry in that I don't really mm. plot my poems. I don't really plan them beforehand like I do for instance with my short stories um so that's really that just something that had to happen i think in 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 my poetry and uh, it my rage came from um you know some of my traumas that i had to experience because i occupy the queer space in this country for instance and in my in my own country iran so it's it's how how can you separate separate rage from trauma and I'm, I'm sure mm. people can do that but personally I I couldn't do that so it it showed itself and I don't feel the need to do that I don't feel the need to conceal my rage and say oh no it's fine like mm. if, <laughs> you know, if somebody did like like queerphobic crime against me it's fine like you know it's good no it's not fine and I'm really angry about that and, and I and I'm sad about it but I'm also angry about it I'm not passively upset about it I'm mm. I'm I'm, in, I'm enraged and I'm gonna write some writing <laughs> <laughs> poetry about it because there's nothing else I can do so that's the manifestation of my rage really but to me that kind of rage is also a part of being queer and mm. occupying a queer space and being in a queer body uh so it it kind of um it comes with that it's a part of queerness and of course they wouldn't talk about it of course there's no space for it in mainstream queer discourses there's no space for right you're just supposed to like be nice and mm. like some glitter in your hair and just and just you know <laughs> with your rainbow flag and just like um you know um I don't know, uh, go to a club and dance to Britney Spears, you know, that's their, that's their version of queerness. And that's fine. That's cool. That's fine. That's, that doesn't necessarily define me. And that's not my version of queerness. So rage, I would say is an important part of my, my queerness and my, my queer existence. And that shows itself in my poetry. So yeah, I hope that answered your question. It does. It's definitely. I, I love the idea that as well that it's instinctive because you can't. I mean, if you're not, if you're awake and you're queer and you're writing, how is there not anger in what you're writing? How is that not there? And I think it must be there. And I imagine the first drafts of a lot of poems that I, I kind of like see in my capacity as an editor, like poems that started off great, probably but have been edited because you can see where somebody's self-censored and I find that nothing but heartbreaking and I find that nothing but sad you know yeah I wish I could do some self-censorship but it's not really for me I haven't <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> shit <laughs> one of the reason I had to, that's one of the reasons I had to leave Iran because I felt I had to do a lot of self-censorship when it came to my art and I just wasn't happening and I was like I'm sorry I don't think I can even do it it's not that I don't want to yeah I want to if it's gonna if you know if mm. I'm gonna benefit from that somehow but I can't even do it I can't do self-censorship I don't know how people do that I envy them good for them you know <laughs> they're thriving capitalism you know but I I cannot do that I cannot do that and I feel 
I think it's claustrophobic, that kind mm. of censorship and self-censorship, both those forms, because um, I have also experienced, you know, censorship, not just self-censorship. Yeah. Um, they're both claustrophobic and I just don't, yeah, I just don't like them. And they kind of, they also slaughter art and literature and everything exciting and interesting and you end up with something really constipated and, and tedious. And why would I want to do that? Why would I want that? So, yeah, it's not really my thing, self-censorship. Some, sometimes I feel I, I, I were better at it, but I'm really bad at it yeah um, I think we're both not great at that <laughs> to possibly the detriment of careers life and limb we just burn the bridge while we're standing on it <laughs> but yeah I mean I think you know thinking about kind of rage and, and that kind of unapologetic but it's also a joyful rage right I mean this is the other thing about rock song that comes across is that there is there's a decadence to it. And I know that you are interested in the idea of decadence. Yeah. And, and decadence is, is really misunderstood, I think, as kind of being somehow like bourgeois and frivolous. And it's the exact opposite of that. It's, mm -hmm. I think the most, you know, I like the most radical thing you can be is happy and joyful, particularly as a queer person, because your joy has been denied you on every conceivable level. Mm -hmm. And I wondered, like, if you could talk a little bit about, you know, your interest in decadence generally mm. and, and decadence in, in rock song and mm -hmm. how it kind of appears and manifests itself. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a really good question. Um, yeah, I think decadence personally, as a queer person, I think I tend to be sometimes a little bit decadent also <laughs> in my personal life, as well as, you know, in my uh, taste in literature and art and what I'm interested in. And that shows itself in my work. Um, but also, I think, they get, as you said, it's, it's the most radical thing to be, you know, a happy queer person. And this is exactly what even the most mainstream queer narratives deny us. Um, so it's important to, to kind of keep that joy and to let that joy strengthen you um, so you can exist, you can breathe, you know, you can, you can live, you can live your mm. life. Um, and that's what a, a heteronormative society and a capitalist society, um, they don't want you to have this joy as a queer person. They want you to be the victim. There's a reason why they mm. only show sad queers on TV and, and you know, crying queers. And, and because that's, that, that grief and that queer, grief is also part of queerness. I'm not saying that doesn't exist. Of course it is. Of course that's also an integral part of queerness. And of course we need to address it and talk about it. Uh, but it's not the only thing. But somehow it seems to me that the straight society, the heteronormative society, the ca capitalism, this is the only queer they accept. So this mm. kind of sad victim who is going to be sad for the rest of their life because they've been, of course, victimized by, by heteronormativity and by capitalism. And, and that's the only narrative that's allowed to exist. Whereas queerness by nature is, is very... It's very layered, it's multi-layered and it's deep and it has so many tones and nuances and, and, and modes and, and it's really exciting actually when you think about it. Um, and I think decadence itself, it, is, it, it can be sometimes because decadence is also about extremes and, and passion mm. and 
sometimes you can't find joy in the passion and even in extremes and and the heteronormative society it's also all about balance and like balancing mm. you know, work hard play harder you know balancing <laughs> everything. obsessed with the idea of balance like if you know uh, exercise like if you're eating that then you need to exercise if you i'm like no why, why should we obey any of these rules what if we don't want to have that balance what if my characters they just want to eat and drink and just be reckless and just have really like um you know really non-normative sex lives and they don't worry about that they just do it because that's that's how they want to be and because they don't give a fuck about the societal norms and the societal rules what if they don't want that what if they don't want your capitalist balance your idea of balance and i understand it can be a good thing i'm I'm, I think I tend to be quite, um, I have been defined by, by many people, by many acquaintance, friends, relative as someone who's quite passionate and, mm. and extreme sometimes and a bit intense. And I like that side of myself because that's a part of me that also makes me enjoy life. And sometimes I don't, I don't want their balance. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, okay, it's good. Now I need to like exercise. Like, I, I don't know. I ate so much food. Now I need to exercise. <laughs> That's a good idea. Like, I don't want to be self-destructive. But then I, I want to have that joy of like intensity. And I think intensity, it doesn't always mean grief. It doesn't always mean trauma. Sometimes it is about joy. It is about ecstasy. And it's about, because there is also beauty in life. It's not all darkness although it's mostly dark especially if you're queer and you don't fit in well but there is also I think and I think there is also and sometimes we don't fit in as queer people because we stand out so mm. it's not necessarily a bad thing it's not necessarily a bad feeling and I don't necessarily feel inferior if I'm like you know if I'm not fitting well in some mm. like party or some social gathering because of my queerness I it's it's it also makes you feel special and there is mm. something to because you dare to be special you dare to be authentic you dare to be yourself so I think there is something in that in that kind of um hedonistic individualism also that you can celebrate that you know there is something uh, very just joyous about it that you dare to be like an individual in a in a world where you're supposed to be just um, a brick in the wall oh. just a brick in the wall and you say and you, and you refuse to be that brick in the wall you know you 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 want to jump out of the wall you might not be safe when you jump out of the wall but but you 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 will experience some sort of intense uh, joys and and passions that you might not when you are just like everybody else and you follow the exact same rules um so decadence yes of course it's important to me and it's been important to me as a queer person as a as a way of survival or also as a as a queer person um so in my work i am also interested in exploring it and i i do explore it also a lot in my creative practice both in my poems and in my prose and I do see it as a way of resistance almost uh, towards this idea that if you're a queer person now you need to just be depressed and and mm. sad and you know and not enjoy anything and then just kill yourself and like then <laughs> so the heteronormative society can then live on and and you'll be dominated yet again by the by heteronormativity and by you know by the by the you know the, the the majority or what the majority are have been conditioned to think is the best thing to be but what my characters i'm i myself i'm not interested in that so 
and I do think there is joy in that. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think it's a position that you're supposed to be constantly grief stricken or, mm. or traumatized. You can be like that, of course, and there are queers like that, understandably so. I mean, it's a, it's a history, queer history is full of grief. Like you mm. cannot separate grief from queerness. Of course, it's an integral part of it, but it's not everything. And I don't want it to be the only narrative of, of queerness of my art and of my life as a queer person. So decadence to me, it, it sometimes it symbolizes joy and it also symbolizes forbidden joy that you're not mm. supposed to have as a queer person. You're not supposed to get what you know. You're not supposed to actually enjoy your life. So no, I'm not gonna listen to your rules. I, I am gonna enjoy my life and I'm gonna do what I want. What are you gonna do now? So that's where the, the my fascination with decadence comes from. I love that. I think that's a great place to, to end the interview. So fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. And life is short, eat more cake. That is what I'm taking <laughs> away from this. And it's an act of pleasure activism to say, fuck you, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. And we all have to be, I think, better activists for our own joy and our own pleasure. So Golnish, it's been wonderful talking to you. We're going to hear some of Golnish's fantastic poems from the forthcoming rock song, which I am so excited about, and I know you will be too. And I hope when the book's out, Golnish will come back and talk to us again about that and share some more poems. Thank you so much for having me, Fran. It's a real pleasure to speak to you and to hear your insights and to, <laughs> to ask your wonderful questions. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you. <laughs> and the first poem I'm okay. going to read is called Sculptures. Sculptures. But why do I have to explain? Why can't I just wear my blue lipstick and be ironic, artsy and eccentric? Why do I have to remind them what they've done to my land or why sanctions are bad? Why do I have to be the teacher rising from the grave of politics? Why should I be the one shouting, we need transgression, darling, not progression, as though I were the chosen one? Why did I consume my youth in sad universities to confirm what I knew all along? To tediously intellectualize my instinct when I could have spent this time burning a bank or a church or even a mosque where dollar prays that queers will die. Why do I have to explain why a lunar boy in a dress who murmurs my art hardens his nipples makes my cunt jump? Why do I have to justify? Why can't I just open the picture of Dorian Gray, page 155? To define is to limit and just stare as though I am gazing at Basil's painting, but instead I am the one aging. Why do I have to inform my father of my sex life when my mother, the sculptor, carved my flesh for years so I'd be as cultured as her dusty library, but she just made me a bruised slut? Why did I desire her dead like the ultimate Freudian cliché so I could have my father to myself? But now that she's gone, my father and I are still apart, cutting each other, yielding blood, and we both think the fox that visits my girlfriend's garden is my mother. This poem is called Euston Station. If you're not too unfortunate, false accusations don't land you in jail. They only break your back. 
You stare at your own voice but can't hear. Everything is too loud. Everything explodes your wound like sirens in spring. Like Houston Station at midnight when you caught three white officers interrogating a black boy. He was staring into space as if the police didn't exist. As if it was just him and the moon, his skin merging with the night. And you feel black with your back bent decked with a sable bruise. You hold on to your books and nourish your bruise like it's your child or that boy. Your bruise an ocean and when it opens its mouth, you let it devour you. You hope it can drown you. It never does. It spits you back into your white room, snickering just a false accusation. Why is your back bent? Why are your eyes red? Why do you care? False accusations come and go like period blood. That black boy is probably free now, like you are. But if you could face the police one more time, you would open your ashen mouth, uttering that you could just tell he was falsely accused by something more sinister than his skin color, that you had no evidence, no corroboration, and you didn't even know why he was arrested, but you could taste his innocence and it was bitter like yours. But you whirl and turn in the gym mirror, getting fitter, supposedly stronger. And everyone says they're glad you got well. And you hope you can turn into steel with a metallic touch like a second-rate Midas. Because by now you know steel is better than gold, for it shines less and is more resilient. But there is no steel, no gold, and the black bruise on your broken back gazes out like that boy shouting. The final poem I'm going to read is a tribute to my hometown and it's called The Wicked Capital. Tehran means reading never-ending Russian novels under my duvet. Glitterless gay parties until the morning as on, until the birds scream. Mahogany cafe serving cinnamon tea and vanilla ice cream. Tehran is smoke and fury, it is fuming. Tehran is static traffic, it is also fenugreek. All girl schools, all boy love and compulsory hijab. And the evergreen Shahid Beshti University where we exchanged gay kisses. But gay did not mean happy, it meant homo, whore, harassed, faggot, corrupt, beautiful. The university whose rules we shattered in our attempts to become Lord Byron. A garden that is still shining. A neon green sun in the northwest of Tehran that inhaled our ashes while we smoked our youth and spat colonial classics, empowering ourselves. Now the question is, will we ever be truly empowered? We, the despondent snobs from the top universities of Iran who ended up in the bottom universities of Brexit land, dump land, the North Pole, doing degree after degree after degree so we, they, can forget our skin color and forgive our accent even though we are pale like flower and quiet like infected parrots. Will we ever be empowered? In Tehran, we are still powerless, even though it is officially our homeland, our sealess port. Tehran, the harbor of pollution where fast cars screech American pub in ambivalent alleyways paved with martyrs' blood. I have never seen a city capable of containing so much love and hate. Tehran is my parents and our house, my siblings and my best friend, his passion for beautiful boys and avant-garde theatre and the scenario of our eternal escape. 
Tehran is my grandmother. Cherry pickles that she made just for me with specifically rotten sour cherries that surprisingly tasted like God. Her God that was not my God and became a gap that devoured our love. Tehran is my real room, my bookshelf, my vanity table, crowded with bottles of blue varnish, my first rainbow flag. Tehran is aromatic, herbs, saffron, dried lime, turmeric, salt, bloody beans, red meat, brown flesh. After Persian cuisine, nothing tastes great. Tehran is Arabic prayers and Persian poetry, bookshops floating in the sizzling summer streets. But also preposterous books such as bad translations of American self-help and Mein Kampf. Everything for a cheap price. And the everlasting question, how can this country survive when Hedayat killed himself and Furuk died at such a young age? Tehran is fear. More wars, more sanctions, more inflation, the morality police, our government, the US government, Saudi Arabia and the government of Israel. Fear of all the governments and fear of more chaos. Fear of expenses, fear of being stuck, fear of leaving and of returning. Fear of missing, fear of losing and fear of winning. Fear of anarchy and love of anarchy and love. Living in Tehran is like being in love with the villain. Everyone judges and wonders why, but one will not lower oneself to explain the attraction. The moment anything is justified, it becomes boring, common, worldly. This is why when people ask where in Iran I am from, I respond, the wicked capital, saturated with gold oil, dripping with black glory. Come in, but stay out so you won't regret it. Thank you so much for listening to me.